Hello and welcome to The Chronosome, the podcast for people stuck in quarantine and wondering what the hell is going on. I'm Kirsten and I'm here with Gabby. Thank you for joining us for episode four. As ever, from the time of recording to the episode going live, a lot of the info will change. But the current stats for today are global cases at 1.6, almost 1.7 million, and deaths at over 100,000. Yeah, exactly. The figures are changing so quickly and uh, compared to last week as well. I can't remember what the global cases were, but we certainly weren't anywhere near 1.7 million before. Um, I think we just passed 1 million maybe last week. So that's yes. huge. And it, it's a similar story in the UK. Um, things have changed very rapidly here since last week. Um, I think we were predicting that, but it's obviously very different to see that actually come to fruition. Uh, in the UK, deaths are now at 9,875. Um, that's across the whole UK. Obviously, the counts will vary by country. And that is also according to a live update from The Guardian. The UK government website hasn't updated yet today, but we know the press tend to get access to those figures a bit sooner than they publicly release them. Similarly, cases are also now just under 79,000 across the UK. Yeah, it's it's quite unsettling to see how quickly those numbers have gone up. I think we were near 30-ish thousand last week, I want to say. Um, so one positive there is that testing has gone up, not by as much as it ought to, but possibly we're picking up more cases as a product of that as well. I'm definitely hoping that the UK testing figures go up soon compared to the targets the UK government kind of set for themselves and also compared to the proportion of people of the tests that we're doing now that are coming back positive. Um, you know, sometimes it's almost hitting 50-50 whether that person came back positive or not. Uh, we definitely should be testing a lot more than we are right now um, and hopefully that would give us a bit of a clearer picture as to where the virus is spread to. Yeah, and it is good that they're now doing in England what they've been doing for a few weeks in Scotland, which is NHS staff household members can all get tested if any one of them have symptoms. So that's good that they're starting to increase their capacity for that too. Certainly not anywhere near the 100,000 figure though, sadly. No, and it still seems quite ambitious to think that they'll be there at the end of the month. It would be great if they were. But I can't help but be a little sceptical there. In Scotland, we're currently up to 542 people that have passed away, 5,590 cases across Scotland. Um, that's deaths published by the by National Records Scotland. And in total, uh, there's just under 30,000 tests that have been carried out north of the border. Um, one interesting thing that we are starting to get is that Scotland have started to change the way that they're providing information about deaths and testing and how many people are in hospital. Um, At the moment, you can see a breakdown of how many cases there are, how many people are in hospital, how many are in intensive care and how many deaths um, by area. So um, being in Glasgow, we're able to see the counts of all of those things specifically for the greater Glasgow and Clyde area. Last time I checked, I think there were just over 500 people in hospital. But um, I I think it's quite a handy way of seeing, um, you know, a bit more specifically what kind of areas, you know, hospitals might be struggling a bit more or, um, you know, where maybe places are starting to struggle where they were relatively calm before, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think from an epidemiology point of view, it's really useful to break it down by area. 
because you can almost think about each, you know, major city in Scotland as a mini outbreak. They they all feed into the larger picture, but transmission chains will largely be kept within cities, especially now that we're looking at this lockdown. We'll be finding that the spread between cities will be hugely decreased because only really people who are mixing are, you know, healthcare workers, people working in supermarkets and people going to get groceries and things. So transmission between cities is really not going to be so much of an issue for the foreseeable. Mm -hmm. So the other thing to note as well is that Scotland are starting to include community deaths. So that includes people who never made it to hospital before sadly passing away or people who died in care homes. And that's really valuable information. I know England are hoping to publish some of that in the near future, but I think the day-to-day records have all mostly just been hospitals. That has caused a little bit of confusion in terms of the reports of deaths across the UK this week, I think. Uh, There's been a lot of conflicting counts depending on whether those numbers are just hospital deaths, whether they include community deaths, whether they include... Uh, cases that have been added, you know, a couple of days later. Um, And so some of the time you can look at some of the major news outlets in the UK and see different counts. At least now it seems like they're starting to be a bit more careful with how they report those. Um, Like yesterday, I think I saw the uh, the Guardian reporting a number as uh, hospital deaths specifically. Uh, So that might help clarify some of that. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting the feeling that sometimes that's being used to downplay the effect when we know that there have been quite a significant number of deaths happening in care homes and in the community. Yeah, and I think it's important not to forget that care homes are quite a vulnerable place at the moment. You know, there's a lot of elderly people and care workers are having to come and go. There is actually one care home in Scotland where some of the staff have moved in to reduce the chance of picking anything up from outside the home and bringing it in, which is a huge sacrifice. But I think efforts like this might be quite important to protect people in care home settings. Yeah, I I think a lot of people are having to make quite a lot of sacrifices at the minute. I mean, even we're seeing some uh, hotels across the UK are giving up space to you know, provide places to stay to NHS workers that maybe have vulnerable people at home or don't want to endanger their families, which I think is a really nice gesture to provide at this time. Yeah, I think it's an important step too. NHS workers are really at most risk of picking it up. So I think if people did catch COVID from work and didn't want to spread that to their families, not everyone has the space at home to isolate from their families and keep them safe too. So I think it's really important to try and look into initiatives like this to provide that space. Especially the advice that we saw that was including if you have a second bathroom, try and use your own bathroom. And clearly most people don't have that uh, luxury. Um, Some people will, but I I can't imagine the majority will. So yeah, it's really nice to know that there are some, um, some businesses that are providing that space for them. The closest example to me I can think of is um, the Welcome Centre where I uh, did an internship has now opened up their um, building for NHS workers in the UCL hospital next door um, as like a respite space. And I can't remember any off the top of my head, unfortunately, but I know there are other places that are yeah, providing kind of a calm spaces or, you know, like 
pleasant places for the workers to come and spend some time to try and recollect after what I can only imagine is a very stressful period for them to be working through. <clears throat> We've talked a little bit about the current reporting around deaths and I think an important aspect of that is predictions. The Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation have produced a report that's predicting the UK will be the worst country affected in Europe. There has been a bit of discussion around that. Some experts in the UK are doubting the accuracy and I think there has been an update now on that. Yeah, so when this report was initially published, they were predicting that the UK could see approximately 66,000 deaths over the course of the outbreak, which is quite a staggering figure. Um, and yeah, it, as you say, it certainly invited a bit of criticism. Um, one of the things that was being commented on was some of the parameters of that model with researchers from within the UK mentioning that, for example, the current impact on our health services was double what it should have been. And yeah, it seems like maybe there might have been a few things wrong because or, or slightly overestimated maybe rather than wrong. And uh, that prediction has now been revised down, however, still to around 37 and a half thousand deaths, which would still place us as the um, worst affected in Europe. It's certainly looking like we're in a pretty bad situation here relatively. So Italy is forecast to have the second highest death toll at 20,000. That's almost half what they're predicting for the UK. So that's actually really quite concerning. Yeah, I think that was the comparison that kind of put it into perspective for me, especially because, you know, as we've mentioned previously on the podcast, people keep comparing to how far behind Italy places are um, or Spain because they've obviously been very severely affected as well. But to see that we could go on to have almost double the number of deaths in total is is pretty staggering. Yeah, it certainly is concerning. Spain and the Netherlands are also predicted to have about 18,000 deaths and France 16,000. So these are big figures for every country um, that we've just mentioned there. Um, but outside of Europe, we're also seeing huge increases in the number of deaths in the US. So they just had their worst day passing 2,000 deaths within a 24-hour period. So the IHME have also predicted 60,000 deaths for the US, but Fauci, their, I suppose, equivalent chief medical officer, he's predicting closer to 100,000. So I think anything in that region is just devastating. Things have taken off so quickly in the US. Um, there are also over half a million cases now, we should say, and that like by far the biggest count of anywhere. They are obviously also quite a big country, but uh, yeah, Kirsten, as you mentioned before we started recording, we didn't see that count in China. And it, it's, you know, these, these kinds of figures aren't really about your total population. You don't start out with cases spread everywhere and then it dispersing relative to your population. You know, you, you kind of, you get as many cases as you get. It's uh, you, you can break it down by population as one way of looking at it, but it's not the most useful way. But yeah, I, I it kind of hit me this week thinking back to Trump saying that things would kind of blow over when they had 17 confirmed cases. Yeah. And it's interesting to think as well how slow we were. In China, Wuhan was shut down when there was, I don't know, like less than 50 deaths, I think. I think it was about 17 or 18. Whereas here it was well over 300 by the time we had our lockdown. So I, I understand 
why there's differences in the way the governments responded. You know, China remembers SARS, they were much more heavily affected. But it's concerning that we had a lot of warning and still were a bit lethargic at doing anything. Yeah, I mean, that was the point at which we decided to start making this podcast, right? It was when uh, a lot of the experts and, you know, academic Twitter was up in arms because we were seeing the death count starting to increase quite worryingly fast and counts were going up and the uh, the UK government was still talking about herd immunity. Yeah, I was definitely quite frustrated at the time when they were talking about herd immunity because we still don't know how long immunity lasts. It's too new a disease to have that data. We know for other human coronaviruses that immunity has been seen to last for only around about three months. For SARS, that lasts a lot longer, but it's yet to be seen how that'll play out for this virus. That will be an important thing to consider when we bring in antibody testing too, because some early studies in China have found that not all patients who tested positive then later had an immune response. So the IgG antibodies, that are memory antibodies, weren't showing up in all patients. So that's concerning. It, it was a small sample, so we don't know for a fact how much that'll be replicated uh, in a larger population. And we don't know if those people were cases who never made effective antibodies in the first place uh, versus people who maybe did and then lost immunity. Um, but in any case, it's worrying that we're seeing people who maybe aren't amounting immune responses to this. Yeah, I, I found that quite interesting that you could have people that had recovered and not have any lasting immunity. Um, because I, I'm not as familiar with the biology of this, you know, the immune responses as you are, Kirsten. But uh, you know, like like I was saying to you before, it if somebody has recovered, that means that their body has produced antibodies to fight off the virus. Otherwise, you know, they, they would have succumbed to it. So. How could somebody recover but not have any trace of, you know, how they fought off the virus of those antibodies? So I suppose your body can respond with a, a broad inflammatory response, which isn't specific to the virus. And that could possibly clear it. The other thing is that you can make short-term IgM antibodies, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll create lasting immunity I think it's different for lots of different diseases and it can be a complicated thing. You need to be careful when you're making vaccines as well because the immune response is quite a complicated thing to train. You don't want to overactivate it or you can create a cytokine storm, which is like a hypersensitive immune response and that in itself can cause a lot of damage. But what you really do want to do is be priming the body so that it does recognize it in a specific way. Did that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So the issue, if we have the case, like this uh, study you mentioned, if we have the case where some people don't produce those specific types of antibodies, that means that with the vaccine, we have to be careful and make sure that the response that we get does produce that type of antibody, right? Yeah, and it also means that we have to be careful that enough people in the population receive a vaccine because for herd immunity to work, you need enough people in the population to be protected who can't pick it up or transmit it. Otherwise, it'll be free to spread among susceptible people. So if you make sure that plenty of people have had the vaccine, 
then the minority of people who maybe don't amount an immune response in this way will be okay because they'll be protected by the herd, as it were. Mm-hmm. And then it's also important to remember that some people can't receive vaccines, perhaps because they have other underlying immune conditions. So you really need to make sure that you're getting good coverage whenever a vaccine does come so that those people are protected. And that's the kind of issue that we've been having recently with people that haven't been uh, giving their kids the MMR vaccine, that kind of thing. We've relied on the concept of herd immunity for a while for those people that couldn't get the vaccine. And uh, once we started getting drops in the rate of people that would have that vaccine done or that uh, would make sure their kids received it, uh, that was when that herd immunity started to fail, right? Yeah, and that's why we started seeing an increase in measles cases, which is quite sad because it's a really easily preventable virus and it's a really awful disease that it causes. I guess it goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about last week with misinformation and why it's really important from a public health point of view that people understand all that. Yeah, I'm really hoping the anti-vax angle isn't going to come into play when we do hopefully eventually have a vaccine for this. Yeah, it's probably the least helpful thing we need right now. Um, There's going to be enough issue with producing enough of the vaccine in the first place, let alone people arguing why we shouldn't be taking it in the first place. Yeah, we really don't need that fight on our hands. And one issue that we um, should mention with the antibody testing as well is because of some of the things that we've been talking about with whether the body produces the right kind of antibodies and what proportion of people produce them and how reliable it is to test for them. Um, There was a bit of a scandal with the UK government where they had ordered millions of antibody tests and were planning on using those to try and assess how COVID had already spread in the community. Um, There was even talk about immunity uh, certificates to give to people if they had been cleared as you know, now being immune being the idea, you know, leaving aside whether they really would be or not. Um, And that's all having to be scrapped because I think it's come to light that they aren't reliable enough tests in themselves. So that's not going to happen now. Yeah, that's quite disappointing. I, I mean, I think it's still hopeful that reliable tests could be developed soon. You know, ELISA tests are the immune tests that are quite commonly used for detecting antibodies. And they are quite a standard test, but it's just a case of making sure you get that right sensitivity and specificity. And I think optimising the test is just something that's going to take a little bit of time. So clearly there have been quite a lot of issues and discussions centering around the way the government has responded and the policies that are put in place, issues people are coming across. One report that we saw this week that was we're quite worried about is um, reports that NHS workers are being prevented from speaking publicly about their work. And I think that kind of centers around whistleblower reports and uh, union bodies coming forward about the lack of personal protective equipment for NHS staff. It varies depending on which area you're in, but it certainly seems like compared to the recommendations of PPE that are being made for people working with COVID-19 patients, there are a lot of NHS staff coming forward saying that they aren't receiving it, they're not being allowed to use it, uh, you know, a lot of issues around the safety of those staff members. There were some reports where people being told to wear the same PPE for multiple patients. And that just doesn't make any sense. The whole point is that you change it each time so that you're not spreading it between people. 
I understand that if you kept the same PPE for the whole, you know, ward round or what have you, you would potentially be keeping yourself protected, but keeping patients safe too is also really important. Certainly. And uh, it seems like if the workers that are coming across this kind of thing are being told that they can't speak publicly about the issues that they're having, it's worrying to think how widespread of a problem this is and what the consequences might be if those guidelines aren't being met. I think also muffling people on this seems a bit anti-democratic. It's really not, I think, appropriate in this time of a pandemic to be suppressing information we really need to know what's going on. And I think there needs to be a lot more transparency. And this also ties into some of the scepticism that's been rising towards the daily media briefings. The government briefings seem quite focused on trying to share the good news stories. So yesterday in Matt Hancock's briefing, he came in talking about the Herculean effort that they've been making to provide the logistics for distributing PPE and how they've involved private companies and the army, and how it's been a massive challenge that they've overcome. And it just feels like they're trying to present this great story of how they've done all this brilliant stuff, but at the same time, we're having these death rates that are exceeding those of the worst seen in Spain or Italy for any one day. And I just think it's a bit concerning that they still seem to be, I don't know, putting a positive spin on things. When this isn't a time to make yourselves look good, it's a time to be honest and to face up to the problems that the government are facing and that the country are facing. I think as well in the briefing yesterday, a journalist asked the question of how many NHS staff members had died and they didn't know the answer. Matt Hancock passed the question on to someone else, uh, the chief of nursing, and I mean, fair enough that she didn't have the figures to hand, but it just felt they really wiggled out of it. And these are really concerning issues and they're something that should be at the forefront of their minds. Yeah, I I agree that a lot of the rhetoric that we've seen put out from the government has been trying to keep spirits up, I guess, which definitely has a role to play. Um, There were comparisons being made to it, you know, being like we're back in the war or something or you know needing that kind of fighting spirit and uh there there is certainly a part to play for trying to keep morale up certainly when people are being asked to stay in their homes and are probably you know getting quite bored and having their own difficulties with that but i also think that by not being so public about some of the issues or not uh, acknowledging some of the things that are going on um i mean considering that they were you know talking about projections of what they expected to happen and when we might see our peak and the last week when we've I mean it wouldn't surprise me if in the next couple of days we see deaths exceed a thousand a day I mean we've already had the worst day in Europe in you know in a single 24 hours number of deaths anyway which is horrible and you know I don't want to belittle that figure but certainly from the government it seems like a lot of the focus has been on other issues like commending NHS workers which is important and uh how um, Boris Johnson has been doing in intensive care, um, which, you know, it is also important. But I do get the feeling that they've kind of stepped away from pointing out quite how dire the situation is getting here. Yeah. And I do understand the need to talk about the positives, look to the future, 
and look to things that are maybe improving. But that can't be at the cost of accountability. We still need to be interrogating what the government are doing, what they could have done better and what going forward they could do better. I think that's just something that we can't ignore. Yeah, uh, related to that, there was a uh, Reuters article that we were looking at. Um, Kirsten, do you want to kind of summarise what that was about? Yeah, so the article was just looking through briefings and government meetings from the start of the outbreak in January to now and looking at maybe things that possibly weren't communicated as well as they should have between the scientific experts and the government, and then also possibly looking at times when decisions should have been made when they weren't. There was some interesting analysis there, and I think it was fair to say that their conclusion was that certainly in the early days, the scientific advisory panels, they maybe weren't enforcing the urgency of things as well as they could have. But At the same time, I do have some question marks about things where in the daily briefings again, the government do seem to quite often say we're following the science, but then there's a real lack of transparency about what that science is. Yeah, and that plays into that accountability because uh, certainly there are going to be, I imagine, widespread extensive inquiries into the way that different governments have responded to the crisis and If we don't have a very clear understanding of what's been going on or the press briefings haven't had the most informative uh, content to them, uh, you know, in a way that lets the government be scrutinized properly, I I think there's a danger there that uh, it allows for some wiggle room. You know, if if you aren't being public with where your decisions have come from or what exactly the science is that you're basing your policies on instead of just saying we're following science um it yeah it, it gives you space to kind of talk your way out of maybe why you didn't respond so quickly yeah it does concern me as well from the point of view that i'm aware of the fact that michael gove is in the cabinet and he has very famously said that we're tired of trusting experts and now to put the blame onto the scientific experts seems like one way of getting yourself off the hook And maybe another way of sowing further distrust in experts. And that's really not something that we need right now, given, you know, what we were just saying about vaccines as well. Yeah, there's a there's a real problem with um, doubting the position of scientific experts in in this crisis. Um, One thing I actually had to do this week um, as part of some part time work I'm doing is uh, I was looking at a report that was looking at the use of misinformation and uh, fact checkers over the last few months. So, so, so basically, it sampled some cases from um, independent fact checkers in the UK uh, between January and March, and tried to look at uh, what the content of that misinformation was. You know how it had been manipulated, or you know how, uh, in what way it was misleading, what the motivations were, and uh, what different sectors of the media or you know whether you're talking about public figures or private general public um what you can do to help prevent that spread of misinformation one of the uh, interesting things that i read in the report was it was talking about 
um, quite a significant amount of misinformation that they'd been trying to deal with was to do with the actions or policies of um, public authorities. Um, and so there seems to be quite a bit of mistrust or doubt of, you know, what those public public bodies are doing. Interestingly, it was saying how a lot of the time that uh, misinformation seemed to almost be attempting to plug the gaps of, you know, outstanding questions or issues that the public might have. And that that was where that kind of misinformation was coming in, actually mixed in with some truthful information rather than it all being completely fabricated. Mm. So it looks like there is quite a key role in those, um, you know, either government figures or uh, public bodies trying to work out how to, you know, make sure people have enough trust in them or or that believe the information that they're putting out. Because uh, if people start doubting that, you know, you, you get, space for people to start looking for yeah conspiracies behind why they might not be telling the truth or why experts might not be telling you everything um it's really important to try and keep as transparent as possible and give information out where people have questions definitely i think transparency about what you don't know is really important because then that can fill those gaps in a way without this misinformation and disinformation having room to come in I think how much people believe you if you say you don't know is a different story. But I think just being really upfront about that is useful. There was another question in the briefing this week when someone asked about the exit strategy for lockdown. So we all know that we're not likely to be leaving lockdown in the coming week, as was, I think, the original end date. And I think it's probably fair when... When Dominic Rabb was asked about this, he said, well, it's too premature. We don't know exactly when that'll be yet. And I don't want to give any false hope. And I think that's fair. But I think he did omit to say if there was any planning for what that exit strategy is going to look like, which is what he was asked about. And I think that's really important too, because we need to understand how lifting lockdown is going to look like whenever it does happen and I can only hope that they are planning that I assume they are but they've just not been very forthcoming about it yeah I can understand that some of that might not be clear right now you know if you you know if uh, for example a successful antibody test plays a part you know if you can lift restrictions because you can see if people have lasting immunity or not or or if the amount of testing available has gone up um, that changes the picture but certainly you can talk about your uh you know main scenarios you know um probably you're looking at when the number of cases start going down and when the number of deaths start going down and things look like they're more in control um as we've seen in other places that you know like in Wuhan where they've uh, started lightening up lockdowns or removing lockdowns now that they have things under control again yeah there there must be some key scenarios that they have planned for what they're going to do in the case that they feel they can remove some of those restrictions and and i think it's important to have those available like you know at least in part to the public because we're asking people to do quite a lot. I mean, you know, people have been saying it's it's a, quite an easy thing to do, but really, if you're asking someone to, you know, ignore all the good weather we're having and not go and see friends, not go and see family, 
barely go to the shops. You know, I mean, people spend a lot of time, you know, just shopping generally, you know, walking around clothes shops and just looking and seeing what's in, you know, people have changed their lives pretty dramatically, even if it's not physically difficult for them to do right now. Uh, And if you're not open to talking about what the next step might look like, you risk people you know, either reaching a point of exhaustion and not sticking to those uh, regulations so well, or just starting to, you know, ignore them and think, right, this has been going on too long. There's no end in sight to this. I'm I'm just going to do this. You know, I'm going to go out again because I've had enough. I hope that's something that we'll see more of in the coming weeks. You know, just a few models or scenarios of what different potential exit strategies might look like whether that'll be, this is what it'll look like if we do get testing, this is what it'll look like if we start seeing a reduction in deaths, even if they don't really have timescales, but just a kind of rough picture. It just feels like everyone's future is very up in the air. And I understand that it needs to be and that they don't want to say anything unless they're certain. But having a slightly clearer picture of some scenarios would be really, I think, useful and beneficial if they have got that information to hand. (coughs) Looking forward, there are going to be lots of changes and cuts in certain sectors. Cancer Research UK have suggested that there's going to be significant cuts due to a significant drop in revenue. They're predicting a loss of almost a quarter of their fundraising income, and they're looking at cuts of about £44 into their research um, grants and projects. So there's going to be really huge implications for academic research everywhere. That's just one example, but it's quite a significant one because this is still really important research. But realistically, I think a lot of sectors are going to have to make cuts like this. Yeah, I think this is something that we're going to start seeing happen, uh, especially in the charity sector. I mean, definitely it's already had a big impact on a lot of things. And I don't want to minimize the amount of people that have already lost their jobs or been furloughed or, you know, a lot of businesses just aren't running right now. But, um, you know, talking about in the future when, um, you know, maybe we come out of lockdown or restrictions are lifted, what kind of impact that might have on different sectors? Like, yeah, I think charity and research work is, is probably going to unfortunately suffer quite a bit you know, people don't have a lot of money right now. And, you know, unfortunately, and it unfortunately won't be a big priority for a lot of people, you know, people aren't really sure if their jobs are stable or not, or how long they're going to keep being paid for. So it's understandable when on top of all their big fundraising efforts having had to be cancelled because of social distancing and, uh, you know, safety reasons, it's not surprising that there's going to be an impact in terms of uh, the funding towards these kinds of uh, research organisations. Yeah, I was supposed to be doing Race for Life in May. Well, I'm glad that I don't have to run 10K. It's, <laughs> I don't know, it's really sad that even obvious things like this are leading to huge cuts. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good example of it. You only have to think of one big marathon being cancelled and the fact that most of those runners are going to have a charity that would have been raising money for mm-hmm. uh, to think of how significant of an effect this is going to have. You know, like if one race has thousands of runners all raising money for charity and 
basically any major sporting event right now has been cancelled. Mm. Um, it, it's it's hard to imagine that anyone would come out of this unscathed. Definitely. And even just personally, I wonder, you know, in terms of PhD students, what kind of effect this is going to have, you know, uh, are places going to reduce the number of, um, you know, placements for research students or, um, you know, will people have to cut projects short? You know, it, it's it's really, it's difficult to know exactly what the effects will be, but I also can't imagine there won't be any. Yeah, I know some of the major research councils in the UK have offered to increase funding for students who've been affected and were meant to be finishing in the next year or so. Unfortunately for me, I just missed the cutoff because my last paycheck for my PhD was before the date that it needed to be. But it is good that they're offering support for that. My concern though is that it's only for final year students at the moment. People who are in the middle of their PhD and are maybe doing clinical work or lab work and they can't do any of that right now, they're going to be negatively affected. Yeah, I, I certainly had a couple of issues about that decision by UKRI just to specify final year students because any student that's currently doing their PhD is going to be affected. And uh, like I saw people on, on Twitter mentioning, if anything, they're going to be more disrupted right now because they might have been right in the middle of testing or data collection. Yeah. And that's had to just be brought to an immediate halt. I mean, I wonder if they've only for now done it for final year and they might review it year by year or in the coming months once they know how long of a break, well, how long of a interruption to research this will end up causing. Yeah, and I'm not sure why they had the cutoff for when your funding period would end though because uh, unfortunately it's a reality for a lot of students that just because you reach the end of your funded period doesn't mean that you stop working or that you've submitted um, any both of us you know either personally or through people we know uh, know that depending on which lab or which department you're in the expectations about whether the end of PhD work is at the end of your funded period or you know six months a year down the line when technically your hand in deadline is um you know can be very different so yeah a lot of my friends who are based in the lab seem to think that you shouldn't be paid for your write-up period and that's strange but yeah but that's definitely just an attitude that their supervisors and other people in their lab have and I just really don't like that like we've not been paid well we've been paid a very small amount of money for the period of your research to then be expected to work unfunded at the end is, well, it's a whole other issue, which I could rant about for a while, but it's off topic of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's something that we should talk about at some point. I mean, I, I share a similar you know, viewpoint. Um, it's not possible to get a PhD without writing a thesis. So why should you be expected to just sort the thesis bit yourself, you know, when you are funded for your PhD <laughs> to get a PhD? Um yeah. So, yeah, we, we can talk about the issues with that and academia in another episode if we'd like. But, uh, yeah, may, maybe we'll cut that discussion there to avoid this going on too long. Yeah. <clears throat> so, talking on a more personal level, Kirsten, how have you been doing this week? I've not been too bad. I think because I took the bank holiday off, I've been a bit more relaxed, especially because today's 
Saturday. I was off yesterday. I just um, I'm in a good headspace actually for once. <laughs> um, I've also been doing a bit of reading. I even baked yesterday, which is quite out of character for me. Um, <laughs> today's task though was attempting to groom the dog. <laughs> um, How did that go? Well, <laughs> so basically, obviously, getting your dog groomed isn't an essential service. But as we're getting into summer and the dog's getting hairier, my mom decided that we had to do something about it. So uh, she was placed in the sink and groomed against her will. I was actually in the garden at the time and then I just heard my mom going, help! And I had to run in. <laughs> but basically she was trying to make an escape from the, from the sink. Um, oh, no. Hair was going everywhere. So I just had to hold and pat her face so that she'd stay put while mum clean uh while mum detangled all her fur oh bless her oh she was raging afterwards went back into the garden and like rubbed herself in all the dirt and bushes and stuff just as if to <laughs> say how dare you clean me <laughs> hopefully she's a bit better prepared for the uh better weather we're starting to have now at least yeah well i mean it's meant to be back down to seven degrees in aberdeen tomorrow so i'm not looking forward to that but I mean, enjoyed the sun a bit today. So I think that's been one of the hardest things about the lockdown the last week or so. We've started to have nice weather and it's it would be easier to stay home if this had happened in the middle of winter, you know? Yeah, you wouldn't want to leave your house. And how have you been getting on this week, Gabby? Um, it depends on what day you ask me. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, earlier in the week, I think I was feeling a bit better about things and, uh, you know, I'd been out and got on a food shop so the cupboards were full again and you know it wasn't too bad but I don't know I think as the week went on it it's just gotten a bit more difficult again um last night was not great had a little bit of a uh a cry about everything and mm. thesis worries getting on top of me um I also did some baking I think you know I, I've always enjoyed baking I've not done much of it recently but um, that didn't help because I followed a cookie recipe that was supposed to be the best cookie recipe and they weren't very good. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and now I have no butter to make another batch with a different recipe. So I'm just stuck with bad cookies. Oh, that's so disappointing. <laughs> and the last thing you needed if you're having a bad week or day. Yeah, I thought like, you know, at least I can do like some late night baking and make some really good chocolate chip cookies, but no. <laughs> um, so, you know, that wasn't so great. Um, the uh, I should say that the reason that my week started better was because, um, so uh, I mentioned, I think last week that I'd done an internship. Um, and so that was at like a science press office. And uh, at the start of the week, I got a call because uh, understandably with all the COVID news going on they have been totally overwhelmed with work and um, wanted me to come back virtually anyway and uh, help them out with some of the workload and so that was a really lovely call to get and um, I'm doing that a couple of mornings a week so um, yeah really excited to get back involved with that team because there were some really lovely people to work with and I really enjoyed the work that they do um, and it you know, it's also just good to have something else that's productive but different from thesis writing just to help break the week up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And also, it's just really interesting work. Uh, yeah, I've, I've only done, you know, a day's worth of work for them so far, but 
you know, hearing some of the discussion about what's been going on, you know, in the national media and what people's opinions are of things like, uh, yeah, I, I just find it really interesting. It's, um, it's, it's good to kind of get that insider perspective on things again. In other good news, my mom just brought me an Aperol spritz. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> the perks of being at home. I think everybody's drinking more at the minute. Mm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Sorry, I just did a horrible slope. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely been uh, trying my hand at making cocktails a bit more often. Oh, what have you been trying? I made a gin gin mule, which is... Gin gin? Uh, gin gin mule, yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, kind of like um, Moscow mule kind of direction, but with a gin twist on it and some ginger beer and that kind of thing um which I really enjoyed um, yeah that sounds really good yeah uh, it turned out really well um but you know I'm trying to also follow advice to stay healthy in case <laughs> I did come into contact with anything so it's, it's a balance yeah definitely I do think I've been eating better because normally I'd eat out loads but at home I'm cooking or my mom's cooking and yeah it's probably in some ways a good thing for me that's good um unfortunately I think I'm having the opposite problem <laughs> <laughs> um we cook a lot at home um I mean we we do get takeaways and you know easy food every now and then but um yeah I I quite enjoy cooking so I tend to do a lot of it anyway um and I think all the extra time at home is just meant more time spent cooking and more foods to try (laughs) they've not always been the healthiest yeah I I did buy olive tapenade because I love olives but I actually don't know what you do with tapenade so if anyone listening has any tips please email (laughs) yeah I definitely can't help you there I'm not sure I've even (laughs) tried tapenade (laughs) I've definitely seen as well a lot of people doing pub quizzes with their friends um I did one last night. I almost won, but it was robbed for me at the last minute. <laughs> oh no! What was no. uh? What lost it for you? No, it was actually the last two rounds. I didn't do that well, so I was second though. I'll take it. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a lot was... better than I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> it was really fun. My friends who made it went to a lot of effort. They had like a whole PowerPoint, and then we went on Zoom and did like a screen share. So it was just really good. It had like a picture round, a music round. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it's been really cool to see the effort people have been putting into doing their own pub quizzes at home. Um, it's, it's funny that this has turned into one of the most popular things for people to do, considering it takes you quite a bit of time to sit and put the questions together in PowerPoints. But I guess people also have quite a lot of free time right now. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that's what's fun about it. It's like a little project. Um, yeah, that's it's not true. too taxing. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a good outlet in that way. Yeah. We're uh, due to do one ourselves soon, right? Yeah, I think we're hoping to do one this week, maybe. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i hopeful to see how, how that goes. I mean, if I'm asked to put a round together, I'm going to have to try and think of something. Uh, I'm, n- I'm never normally very good with coming up with trivia questions, but uh, who knows? Maybe this is a, yeah, a fun project to work on, like you said. Yeah, some of my friends also said that they ended up doing like pub quizzes and rounds where they'd ask questions about themselves or each other and that could go badly (laughs) oh so almost like a friendship quiz rather than a pub quiz (laughs) yeah (laughs) how well do you know me 
or how well do you think you know me? <laughs> yeah, or it's like those kind of savage games that you get at parties where it's like, who's most likely to do this awful thing? Um, and then you all have to pick and it's just awkward. <laughs> Maybe the best time to ask those questions is when you are physically distant from someone though. <laughs> <laughs> they can't get too annoyed. <laughs> That brings us to the end of episode four. Before we go, I have a couple of mentions to make. The gist is this science magazine that both me and Gabby have worked or volunteered for over the years. And we have an article published on their website last Monday. So please go and check it out. And also please check out some of their articles. They've got lots of really cool science and they're still publishing throughout this time. So keep an eye on them. That's the gist. Glasgow Insight into Science and Technology. Another shout out as well, if you haven't already seen it, the BBC Horizon programme on coronavirus was really, really good. It included uh, Hannah Fry and Chris Van Tolken, and they gave a really good overview of the science behind the epidemic and some of the modelling problems. So that's one to check out if you're looking for a reliable source to find out a little bit more information about the outbreak. Speaking of reliable sources, uh, please, if you're looking for the most up-to-date health advice regarding COVID-19 or coronavirus, please check reliable sources like the NHS website or the government websites where the most accurate information is available. Also, one thing you can do to play a small role yourself, if you see people sharing things on Facebook or Twitter that are clearly either conspiracy theories or misinformation, um, you know, you can either flag it, I think, sometimes as misinformation or fake news or uh, as much as I hate that phrase um, or uh, you know maybe just uh, message the person or comment politely and just say you know look this information isn't accurate because uh, the more we can prevent the spread of unhelpful things like 5g conspiracies uh, the better if you do want to contact us at all our gmail is the coronazone at gmail.com our Twitter is CoronaZonePod and our Instagram is the CoronaZone. Our intro and outro music is from Audionautics.com. Thank you so much for listening, guys, uh, and thanks for joining us again for episode four. This has been really fun, and I uh, hope you listen to us next week. Thanks, bye. Bye.